And that is the truth of our world, Max. It can't be easily summed up with math. There is no simple path. But as a Go game progresses, the possibilities become smaller and smaller. The board does take on order. Soon all the moves are predictable. That's so, so? So maybe, even though we're not sophisticated enough to be aware of it, there is a pattern. So you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared Andrew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. We're returning to our normally scheduled programming this week and starting a brand new batch of 50 films. For the first film of the new 50, we landed on another debut from a modern auteur filmmaker. We're talking Darren Aronofsky's 1998 hyper-low-budget psychological thriller, Pie, starring Sean Gallette. This is quite a movie to start the new 50 with, Jared. Yeah, dude, it feels it feels good to have a more traditional episode. Like the Unas, we had a blast recording that. And I'm already looking forward to the next Una Award show in, I guess, 50 episodes from now. And before that, we had Steven on, who was excellent. Uh, but it's kind of nice just to have a tradition one here. And I think this is a fun movie to start this next batch on. And as we've been chatting in the sort of the intro pre-chat banter, we both have really, I think, kept our cards close to our vests. I don't know how you feel about this movie. I don't think you know how I feel about it. Yeah. So I think it's going to be a, a fun conversation. Yeah. Uh, we should also mention, uh, you made a note on, on our uh, outline here that we have one last OG remaining on the board. It survived the first batch of 50 somehow. I know. It is the straight story. Which is uh, actually it's a David Lynch movie, so kind of related a little bit to this Aronofsky yeah. film a little. Um, but I've heard it's like a very kind of straight down the barrel type of movie, hmm. and there's a really fun story about how it got on the board and everything else. We'll get to it whenever we hit it. But it's so bizarre that it's the, the that we didn't hit. What number is it even? Actually, I don't have that on. on. It is number twelve. 12. Okay, so somehow we went through 50 dart throws without ever hitting a 12. And coincidentally, uh, Stephen, the guest on the M episode, he said it was a movie he was really excited about for us to, to discuss. So, yeah, he said it's one of the, the ones that stuck out on the list for him. So, yeah, yeah I'm interested to see what that's all about. It. Uh, Do you think we'll hit it in the next 50? <laughs> watch us just hit it today. I mean... Yeah, dude, knowing our luck and our like weird recent throws where people are probably thinking this whole thing is rigged swear to god it's not we're surely gonna hit it tonight just 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 to keep that streak going yeah it's it's gonna be interesting when we finally get to that one uh but i'm i'm kind of glad we have one hanging around with that in mind why don't we do a little board review here to orient ourselves as we kick off this next 50 love it on the board currently we've got Number one, You Can Count on Me. Number two, Akiru. Number three, Reflections of Evil. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi, tonight's episode. Number nine, Get Carter. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, Coraline. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Night Moves. Number 14, Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Secrets and Lies. Number 17, Titan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The Terminator. That's a good 
list for starting us off down the next 50. Pretty Love stoked, it. pretty stoked. Yeah, pretty I've stoked. Uh, I've got I've only got 7 movies on the board right now. Mm. Um, we've got 3 from from guests that put put movies on um, and then you've got 10 up there. So mm. yeah. Nice yeah, you know, mix. it's funny, as you were running through that list, some of those n- movies, the old movies, are still burned in at their number slots. So when you look to number two, Akiru, I'm like, I still hear Ex Machina in my head as number two. And that was months ago that we did that episode. <laughs> so it's been Akiru for a minute. But um, With but yeah. apologies to Mark Ruffalo, number one has been You Can Count On Me for so goddamn long. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I still have to apologize to Mark in this second patch of 50 to, uh, for however long that's going to go for. Yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah, well, time will tell. <laughs> Shall we dive into pie here, though? Yeah, dude, love it. Let's get into it. Okay. Jared, this is one of your selections. How did this one get on the board? It was just one of those things, man. Like... I was thinking about Aronofsky and I was like, you know, I have seen so few of his movies. I have not seen Black Swan. I think the only one I had seen was The Wrestler and everything else I had kind of skipped. Which is kind um, of an outlier for his in his filmography. Yeah. I mean, we were ways. talking when we said with the straight story, like, you know, The Wrestler is also kind of like a down the barrel type of story. You know, it's it's a pretty straightforward kind of narrative type of thing. I guess I don't, I don't necessarily mean it in that way. I mean, I think, I don't think that's, that's untrue, but in terms of like the things that Aronofsky seems to be interested in and the themes that, that typically show up and um, you know, it's a, it's a much more heartfelt film than I feel like most of his, most of his movies tend to be very removed and, uh, and, and kind of cold and and distant in some way. Um, So, yeah, you know, it's just, I love that thing with movies as we, you know, you and I obviously both just love them. There's a, when a scene just sticks in your head and you have no idea why, whenever I think of The Wrestler, I think of the scene where Mickey Rourke calls the neighbor kid over to play video games with him. He's like, in the, he's in the doorway of his trailer. He's like, you want to play Nintendo? And he like kind of waves him over. I just, that shot is like burnt in my mind. I don't know why. It's just a very kind of like... It's so heartbreaking and he's so kind of just like lonely and, and living in the past and everything. But like the shot, I don't know, something about it just sums it up perfectly. So hmm. so I was like, you know what? I got to make an effort to get some more Aronofsky in my life. Like he, the guy's made a bunch of movies. He's been a really kind of, I don't know if he's influential, but like a big name in our lifetime. Certainly, you know? yeah. So I was like, why not start at the beginning? Let's let's go with kind of his first kind of major release, Pi. I remember hearing about it a little when I was a kid. Um, but I really knew nothing about it. So I was like, let's get that on the board and let's kind of start seeing how I feel about Aronofsky. Cause I really don't have much of an opinion and I uh, just kind of want to see where his quote unquote style kind of got started. You know, what's your experience with him? Do you, do you have a favorite? How do you feel about him overall based on what you've seen? So I think when I was younger, I was definitely more interested in him as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I think in recent years, I've kind of fallen off with him. Um, I've seen a good bit of his filmography, but I haven't seen some of the more recent ones. Like I haven't seen Noah. I haven't seen. I haven't seen Mother. Uh, I have seen The Whale and fucking hated it. Uh, which that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to go into the details on that, but yeah. But yeah, that movie is is disgusting. Um, mm-hmm. But. Going back, you know, when when I was 
entering my my film snob phase, you know, in college and kind of really starting to dig into this stuff. That was right around the time that the wrestler was coming out, and the fountain had coming out come out pretty uh, uh, soon before that. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of one, two, three of the fountain, the wrestler, and Black Swan, I was all in on. Mm-hmm. Um, the fountain is one I've only seen once, but really enjoyed when I saw it. I need to revisit that one. I don't think I've heard of that one. Really? Fountain. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. all of his other films, I can picture like the poster or the trailer or whatever but i don't know anything about that one i don't think i mean it's a movie that kind of came and went a little bit i mean it's like in in you know film circles i think it's it's more revered but it's certainly not one that had mainstream success it's it's a really convoluted uh, a heady sci-fi film where it's like three uh three timelines uh that are there are always two characters, one played by Hugh Jackman and one played by Rachel Weiss. And, and mm-hmm. it's like love across time. And, you know, one's in the past, one's in the present, one's in the future. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it involves like the tree of life and kind of like the pursuit of, of uh, uh, immortality and stuff. Um, it's, it's an interesting movie for sure. I would, I would recommend watching it, but don't watch it unless you're like trying to really like dig in psychologically to something. Right. I got you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I have to be invested if I want to check that out. Like for it's sure. not a thro- it's not a throw on. Yeah. So so that that one, two, three, Fountain, Wrestler, Black Swan, I was all in on. I, I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I still think the wrestler is a com- a, a really undervalued film. Um and the behind the scenes on that movie is is kind of hilarious to think about. Um just you know how Aronofsky was wrangling Mickey Rourke, this fucking insane person uh, to get this brilliant performance out of him. Um, And then Black Swan, I think, is like one of the best psychological thrillers ever made. Like, I I think that movie's incredible. And and people like I don't understand why people weren't putting that on the best of the decade list. Like, I I think Mm. it's like up there with some of the best. Um, but, uh, but to, to round out, you know, my experience with Aronofsky, yeah, like, you know, I had my period where I was really into him, kind of, kind of fell off with him. Um, I saw Requiem for a Dream in high school and, and, you know, I was with some uh, friends at a sleepover or something and like, it was, it was not one that, that really, uh, connected with me, but I, I definitely deserve, or I owe that movie a rewatch just because I, it was not. I was not prepared for that movie when I yeah. saw it when I was Dude, younger. You want to hear something crazy? We watched that movie in health class in high school. What the and fuck? And we were just like... Was, was that just yeah, scare I, tactics? I th- Pretty much. Yeah, I think so. And a person who ran... Uh, I can't remember her name, but she was like a nurse, like an, like an emergency, like, you know, in an ambulance type of medic, I guess you could say. And she just did this like teaching health at the high school on the side. So she was like pretty hardcore. And we're just watching this movie. I'm like, Jesus, I can't believe we're watching this in like ninth grade health or whatever it was. And at one point she's like, she turns the TV around. It's like, okay, we're not going to watch this part. It's a little intense. And I was like, a little intense? <laughs> like this whole movie has been a little intense. What could possibly be worth turning the TV over? And she just looks blankly at the class and goes, they're going to ass to ass with a double-sided dildo. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, but she was cool, man. I remember I let her borrow my uh, Dane Cook CD. And she was really into it and like listened to it with the class and shit. It was crazy. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, yeah. yeah. But um, I also want to rewatch that movie because I've only seen the health class edited version. I've never seen the, the double sided dildo scene. Incredible. And I'm just, 
I remember being um, frustrated with that movie, which is, of course, the intention. Like, the anxiety really set, you know, God was effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into it tonight, but that is such a fine line to walk, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, so so just to, to clarify, is Requiem for a Dream the only Aronofsky movie you've seen? The Wrestler, oh, Requiem right. you for said a the Dream, yeah. and I think that's it. None of the others popped. Because the only other Requiem. ones are The Fountain, Black Swan, Noah, Mother, and The Whale. But uh, for now, let's turn back to Pi. So this was his debut film, super low-budget film that he made and uh, put into Sundance and... and gained a ton of acclaim. I think he won the the directing prize at Sundance that year when when this came out. What was your impression of Pi on first viewing? I would say in like one sentence I'd say there's stuff I liked but overall I really did not dig it. Mm, I I, I had okay. a really kind of tough to, rough time with this movie. I was not super into it. There are again parts that I loved, but overall as as a, as one piece it's just like eh no. Not not my style, not for me. And a lot of it boils down to the character, I think. Mm. Max, the primary guy, is just so unlikable, mm-hmm. and I can't sympathize with him. So whenever he's in a sort of traumatic or dangerous position, I just don't give a fuck. I'm just like, I just don't like this guy at all. So that was a, bi- that was a big problem, just not being able to connect with the character or empathize with him. Um, and then also like the, the way they try to, and I would say very effectively show paranoia and anxiety and, um, kind of a mental breakdown it's effective, but it's just, it doesn't make for uh, a great viewing experience. And I know that sounds extremely off-putting. Yeah. And it's, and, and like, obviously that's the point and that's what they're going for. So it's certainly not a failure, but there is this really thin line, I think, between something causing anxiety, and that's the uh, intent, but it still is something about it underneath it that makes it enjoyable to watch. Um, a recent example, I think, would be something like Uncut Gems. Like Uncut sure. Gems is a highly anxious movie, but um, it's not really difficult to take in, in in a lot of ways. It's just a little bit smoother. Well, I think there's more inher- inherent entertainment value in that. And um, I think, you know, this movie is essentially speaking its own language, you know, in terms of like the the mathematical stuff that it's it's dealing with. Like the it's stuff that you do not encounter in your daily life regularly. Whereas like Uncut Gems is like, I think it's a lot more of an easy to digest story and, and concept. So I think you're you're allowed in a little bit more with that. I think that's true, and it might be kind of an unfair comparison. It's just no. Um, I don't think I don't think it's yeah. unfair at all. I think I think the paranoia and the you know the the descent into darkness kind of uh, like I, I think there's there's certainly a lot of overlap there. Yeah, the anxiety too, but like definitely, um, you know, just like when he's going when Max is going through these breakdowns and the, you know the sound design, which again is really effective and it's doing what it wants to do. I, I mean, I think just, it's outstanding. Like, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's, it's achieving the desired effect. Yeah, but it's like. <laughs> I don't but, know something about it. But the question it, is, just, is the desired effect what you want out of a movie? Yeah, you know, and like also, I don't like this guy, so I don't really give a fuck about his headaches. You know what I mean? It's just like, so I just can't connect with this guy, and I'm getting barraged with uh, flashing images and noises, and I'm, and my senses are under assault. But 
through it all, I don't have a lot of empathy for the character mm-hmm. until the very end. Actually, I do think the ending of this movie is is solid. Actually, now now that I'm really thinking about it, and as we're talking about it, it's got it's got a good ending, mm-hmm. and and there is a lot that I did dig, and we will we will get into it. I'm really glad I saw it. I'll definitely say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just was like I'm not. I can't really get into this movie's groove, and I think that's. A lot of that is on purpose, and it's it's not supposed to be a, an easy movie to just throw on and eat a, eat a bunch of popcorn and chill. Like, and I get that, um, and it is super cool the things they were able to do on such a limited budget. And I was listening to some of the commentary today, like the kind of old school, kind of guerrilla style filmmaking they mm-hmm. did to pull this off is great and should be commended. Um, so there is a lot of good here, in my opinion. But um, but I have to be honest about it when I think about it. It's like, uh, it didn't really work for me. I think that's entirely um, fair. Yeah. So that was kind of my impression. Well, let me let me ask you one more question before I sure. give my my thoughts on it. Um, mm-hmm. Does it make you more eager to check out Aronofsky's stuff? Yes, it does. Okay. Um, especially considering this was just kind of like practically a student film. I don't even know if he went to film school. but He like, did. Yeah, he went to the AFI like, Conservatory. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, he was a classmate of Todd Fields who uh, made uh, oh, Tar yeah. and, and uh, uh, Little Children and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, uh, in- I just thought it was, I, I read that and I was like, oh, that's interesting. They were in class together. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, again, even though it's a tricky watch, it's it's trying to do that. It's a well-made movie. It's doing everything it wants to, it seems. And um, it was unique. I haven't really seen anything quite like it. And so I am interested in checking out more Ar- Aronofsky. Um, I don't know if I'll march it through, march through his filmography sequentially or whatever. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, it, so even though I had issues with it, I am, I do want to check out more of his stuff. Cool. Well, that's good to hear. I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it sounds like if I were to summarize your thoughts, it seems like you didn't enjoy the experience overall, but you could appreciate it on a craft and, and just construction level. Yeah. That's that's totally fair. Like we're not talking like I mean I kind of famously within the show's history really despised um, Moulin Rouge, but even that I could say I could see that it was well made. It's just uh, uh, what it was was just I hated. I hated <laughs> the creation. Um, this is not that far, um, but it is similar in that way of like I can I can see that it's well crafted, and and again I know it's trying to get under my skin. It's trying to to beat me up, um, but. It's not worth that toll if I can't connect with the character, in my opinion. But that's kind of my overall vibe. What did you think of this movie? I think on first viewing, I had a similar reaction. I wouldn't say I was as negative as you you were on it. I wasn't as bothered by the the central character not being a uh, you know empathetic presence. I. Uh, I kind of knew going in that this was going to be a dark movie. And so I didn't really intend on finding a lot of levity in there. And there is really not any levity in this at all. Um, Maybe with the exception of just Mark Margolis, uh, just because he's Mark Margolis and he's an interesting actor and like, he's kind of playing it in a fun way. But like outside of that, this movie is like dark, depressing, and very, <laughs> very hard to watch at times. It's hard tech. It's very dense. It's very, it, yeah, it is. It but is I difficult. think I was a little bit more mentally prepped for that maybe than you were. So I, I think, you know, it, it didn't quite bother me the same way. The other thing that you brought up that, that I think it really attaches to what I've, I felt watching it the first time was the film school aspect of it. 
And it really does at points, especially in the middle portion of the movie, start to feel like, okay, this is just film school snobbery bullshit. Like you, like you are so far up your own ass, like that you, I don't know if you can even see daylight. Like it's, it's like, um, was, are you meaning like a shot choice? Is it more kind of that type of thing? Yeah. And just, I, I think some of the, um, the hallucination uh, uh, imagery and like the, you know, the brain that he's like poking, yeah, poking and stuff. a brain on the stairs, you know, yep. all that stuff starts to feel like, okay, dude, like yeah. <laughs> get out of your own way here. Like we don't yeah. need this shit. Yeah. But I think, you know, as I've sat with it and as I watched it a second time this morning, I've, it's grown on me. And I think, I think the parts of it that I really can appreciate are, are elevating it beyond my frustrations with it. I think photographically we'll get into this because I really want to talk about the cinematography of it, but, um, I, I was pretty hit or miss on it, but there were points of, of it where I was just like, wow, that's brilliant. The, the, the sound design is for, for the budget they had that they pulled off this like level of sound design and that it, it's like, it's almost like they use their um, limitations to their advantage and like the the jankiness of it like contributes to the anxiety that the movie has. And I think, you know, I, I think it's really well edited. I think it's constructed in, in just a, a, a way that I didn't anticipate a movie about a mathematician having this propulsive quality to it, but it really did keep my attention the whole time. Like there were no points in the movie I felt like where I was checking out of it. I was pretty locked in, which is, you know, I, I was a little bit surprised by it, quite honestly. So I think, I think you know, all in all, if I'm, uh, you know, looking at it in the totality, I think it's a really good movie, but I think it's more of a curio than it is something that I like would recommend to people. You know, it's like it, like if someone told me, oh, I, I've seen like three or four of these Aronofsky movies and I'm super into it. I'm like, oh, you should really check out his debut pie. Like, like it's one of those, but it, but it's a situational recommend. It's not like, it's not one that I would ever just be like, you should go out and watch this to a random person. Yeah, yeah. It's like you have to be someone who likes strangeness in film and something who, someone who doesn't mind, um, you know, again, your senses being somewhat under siege because that's that's the objective of the film in many ways, I think, is to put you in Max's headspace. No doubt. And it does it very well for 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 like no money. But, yeah, it's not exactly like my casual film fans, friends. I'm not going to be like, dude, drop everything. Stop what you're watching. Go see Pi. And that's even if I liked it. And as we've discussed, I didn't even really care care for it that much. But I get what you're saying. It's like there'll be there will be a time and a place and a person where this recommendation will sing, uh-huh. but it's not going to be every day. <laughs> no, but, um, but no, I think, yeah, just all in all, I enjoyed watching it. I think I got a lot out of it. It's not going to be on the top of my year, you know, 50 list by any means. Um, but I'm glad I watched it. it. It's definitely good context if you're into Aronofsky and it does make me eager to go back and, and check out the other ones that I haven't seen of his. Yeah. I mean, again, all of my sort of hangups are all just related to not connecting with the character. Like all that stuff in his apartment at his like sort of homemade supercomputer thing, like when he's pausing before pressing return and stuff, I'm just like, I just, I don't care. I just, I don't, I don't care about this guy. I think, I think there's, it's not even just the character though, that, that kind of gives me that, that reaction sometimes, but there are like, 
multiple instances where Max is reacting to something that he's seeing, you know, whether it's like numbers or or like some some like computer screen, like it's something completely unintelligible to us as an audience. Um, and there are some where we can infer sort of what they are, but like there are a few where I was just like, I have no idea what he's looking at, and he's reacting so strongly to this. Like I'm I'm supposed to just like understand through his reaction like sort of what's happening but it's like it, it's very jarring and and it's not like the movie does not let you in very easily yeah and i don't really understand what he's doing you know like like so he's at his computer and he's trying to predict the stock market or is trying to, to test his theory on the stock market really um he he claims to not be materialistic and he's not looking to like scan the system i think he's really just using this very chaotic uh external thing as a as a proving ground for whether or not his algorithm or whatever applies so i i get that that he's kind of using trying to test his theory against this reality um or this thing in the world but like when he sits there and presses enter and he gets the thing that he prints out like what is that and like the movie never really explains i don't think like what he's actually doing at that computer. Like, I don't know. I don't really get it's it. It's number like, crunching. It's, it's some form of just like using a high powered computer to process formulas that he physically couldn't do like by hand or that's, a, that's how I read it anyway. So he's just, you know, he's putting together an algorithm, punching in data sets from, from the stock market ticker or whatever, and hoping that it's going to spit out, the correct stock market predictions, but instead it spits out this 216 digit number. And so he thinks it's just crashing and failing on him. When in reality, that is actually the key to unlocking the true answer to it. Um, so it's, you know, I think, I think ultimately you're just, I don't, I don't think you're supposed to necessarily know how that computer works. I think it's, you know, it's a little bit like a sci-fi thing where it's just like, don't worry about it. It's a technology that punts, you know, picks out numbers and figures shit out. Yeah, I think that's fair, you know, and um, kind of reminds me of stuff like, you know, do you watch that show Severance? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. talked about yeah, we've it. Talked we've talked about, about it. it. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of reminds me as we're talking about the scenes in Severance where they're picking numbers mm. at, at work. I wonder if that was a little homage or something to Maybe. do with pie or, or who knows. But um, yeah. And again, there is a bunch of stuff I did. I dig in this movie and we will, we will get there, but um yeah, I was just always kind of confused about what was going on in this room to a degree. And and again, this guy is just so rude. He's so impolite and so rude. And I know that's the character. That's the type of person he is. He's very cloistered and closed off and stuff. But um, again, it was just so hard for me to touch base with this character on, on so many levels. I think that's fair. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of the character, how did you feel about the performance? Uh, the actor's name is Sean Gallette. Uh, he was a friend of of Darren Aronofsky's from college, and uh, yeah, I, I, what did you think of the performance? Overall, I would say I really didn't like it. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Um, wow. Like, I think it's a it's a tough it's a tough ask, you know. Like, you got to play this mathematical genius who's very difficult, but the the choices he makes, and you know, maybe deciding alongside Aronofsky and stuff like that. Like just add a, like sometimes his speaking voice doesn't seem to match what's going on. 
like he's like talking to Mark Magolis, you know, the, the the professor guy who is like who I think is fantastic. We'll get to we'll get to him. But he's like all of a sudden he's just yelling at him. And it's like the conversation did doesn't seem to escalate organically. He's just like, You gave up on it, Saul. Like blah blah. And he's like, he's just shouting. I'm just like, this doesn't seem appropriate for the scene at all. And then there's this the stuff when he's getting like chased by all the different groups. And uh, you know, there's the Wall Street people, and then uh he bumps in he bumps into Lenny Meyer, that Jewish guy played by Ben Shankman, and gets in the car. And I'm just like, God, this guy is just so fucking annoying. Like he's in the back seat and he's like, it's in my head. I got the number in my head. And then like, like these Jewish guys, obviously they want something from him, but they are being somewhat helpful. And he's just like, uh, and the guy's like, oh, did you give it to those Wall Street dicks? And he's like, what do you care? And he's just so confrontational and shouty. I'm just like, I fucking hate this guy. He's so obnoxious. And again, like the times where he makes the choice to dial up his energy in the performance oftentimes seems to me very out of place and doesn't come off as organic. So overall, it made me really not care for the performance, I would say. Yeah. Um, but It didn't bother me that much. I, I think um, I, I don't think it's like a. a standout performance like it's not one that i'm gonna remember for a long time but it's you know it's serviceable and i think like his breakdowns uh you know all that stuff works for me i you know the scenes you're you're highlighting i i tend to agree with you i think he goes a little too big with it and um but i but i do think some of that is just a function of the character not as much the actor yeah, um, I can, and, and I can forgive that. Like, the, it is a, he is a socially awkward person, so it, there, it stands to reason that like he doesn't do conversations. Well, well and he's, or he's human also developing a god complex. You know, he's mm-hmm. developing this idea like like even early in the movie, like he is already on the path to like I am better than everyone around here because I've figured this out, and like I I'm going to be like. Yeah, I'm, I, it, you know, he's searching. You find out like later in the movie, you know, he's searching, uh, essentially to find the name of God. You know, this unspeakable name, and I think in some ways, you know, the God complex is really infecting his brain over the course of that because he's as he gets closer to figuring that out, he starts to feel like he is God. You know, and yeah. And, yeah, and he has that confrontation with the rabbi that kind of speaks to what you're saying mm-hmm. about like how he's like, I found it. You know, it came to me. I I have earned this information. You, meaning the rabbi, have not earned it. Mm-hmm. If you had earned it, or if you deserved it, you would have it. So I I you know I have it, therefore I deserve it. So yeah, he does kind of get that sort of egotistical streak is is pretty aggressively stoked throughout the film but really at the end when it comes to a head when it yeah. leads up to the drill scene you know and i th- and i think that that like that evolution is an interesting portrayal of mania and and obsession and did he annoy you as much as he annoyed me or no i guess i guess there not. were i mean there were moments where i was like fuck this guy but like it, i think i don't think the movie wants you to to think he's a good guy necessarily yeah no like, i think I, I think that's true and, and maybe that's a flaw of the movie in that it's like you said like you had nothing to emotionally latch on to um but i think it i don't think that's necessarily like i think it could be by design a little bit yeah yeah, I think I think that's true, and it's so hard for me to 
not be hypocritical about this stuff because well, like Raging Bull is one of your favorite movies, and like yeah. that's the most unlikable character ever that put is, to film. That is such a he's so he's so unlikable, just like you said. And then you know we talk about Sorcerer on this show like every other week. That is a movie full of villainous characters, and I love that movie. So that I don't that think, being said, that one's got Roy Scheider at the middle, and he's got those true. dreamy eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, so it's like I I don't need to to like characters, to enjoy, to enjoy characters. Like yeah. I like darkness and, and all this stuff, but this guy, I guess, I guess my problem is rudeness is like Jake LaMotta. He may beat his wife, but uh, he'll say thank you to the waiter. So <laughs> that gets a pass. <laughs> but um, The old Jared seal of approval. Yeah. But um, so yeah, it's, it's just weird. And I don't, I can't really identify when a movie or when a character pulls it off that's like you know like we're saying in the raging bull sorcerer vein where these people do uh detestable things but i can i can connect to them on some level i can understand them this guy's so walled off that i just can't you know and again that must speak to a strength in the performance because he was walled off from me i couldn't I couldn't get in there either, and he doesn't want anyone around him. So, if I were to guess, I mean, just using those two examples, I think the difference is in Sorcerer, you've got this propulsive energy to it where it, you know, they're 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 on this mission, and the mission is so intense and and like like sucks you in so deeply that I, I think you kind of like don't really care at that point who the characters are because you're more just like holy fuck, like everything that's happening in this is so crazy that like, it's fine, you know? And, and like, there's a, there's a, a destination in mind, you know, in that movie, like there's, there's, there's some goal there. Literal, a towards. literal destination. It's a road trip movie, really. <laughs> and, and there is like a driving force behind this movie as well, but it's way more obscure and way more like, like hard to, hard to comprehend. Like, what is this movie actually driving towards? Other than just watching somebody collapse in on themselves like a dying star. But the like the, you know, and then the Raging Bull example, I think like you probably went into that movie being like, I'm not supposed to like this character. Like I, I, you know, like there's other things going on here that I'm supposed to be taking away from this. Yeah. Um, Well, I think I think the thing about. um, It's funny, there's a lot there's a lot in common between Raging Bull and Pie when I really kind of strip it down. Some of them are very kind of low-hanging fruit like black and white and things but raging bull for me is always a movie that's just about uh paranoia and anger Mm. and i have gone through paranoid phases in life so i can relate to when kind of paranoia gets out of hand and all those shots where he thinks he sees what his wife is doing but it's all just like in his head you know like i could just relate like i've i've been that guy of just like kind of making assumptions that are not true and then treating it as if it's reality. And, you know, so, and this, this character is kind of, is, is extremely paranoid. And there's all that stuff in pie where he's like looking over his shoulder and he's like, you know, when he's on the phone with that person who offers him the computer chip and he's like, Oh yeah. And like, um, well, that's the wall street people, the wall street people. Yeah. And he's like, get rid of the tail and then we'll talk or whatever. It's like, I think there's a chance that that, that those are just people on the street. And the woman on the on the phone is just like, yeah, okay, we'll get rid of the tail. Oh, I think. Like there I mean, I think tail. there's a read of this movie where like seventy five percent of the movie is in his head. 
Uh, I mean, like, there's, the, I, I think you could totally read it as like the Wall Street people and the Hasidim and like all, like the, these people are all just figments of his imagination. Like yeah, because we get introduced to his insanity pretty early on with that guy on the train mm-hmm. who starts singing. And then all of a sudden he's just gone. So it's like, okay, we know we're working uh, in the mindset of someone who's not very reliable here. And, you know, he does have these sort of dream sequences, which I didn't really notice until the commentary. Um, They were all kind of the tail end of all the headaches. Mm -hmm. It was they build they would build and escalate. And then there was a sort of a dream sequence and then a flash of bright white that would kind of lead him back into sort of reality. but, you know, stuff like that, the guy vanishing on the train was like, you know, in between headaches. That was not a part of those sort of dream scenarios. Right. So, yeah. I think, and also I think that, the, that hallucination is uh, a manifestation. It, like the, there's no dreamy quality to it. It's just a person there. So, like, the, you know, you're, you're, the language of the film is telling you that his hallucinations sometimes are, are, uh, indistinguishable from his dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true. And, um, so I don't know, I mean, as we're kind of kicking around, it definitely is an interesting movie. And I oh, yeah, glad for I sure. saw it. Like it's, 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 there's a lot of meat on this bone <laughs> and it is hard to try to figure out what's real. Like, I don't understand the ants. I don't know what they're doing around his apartment. Like, um, well, and I, yeah. And I want to say also like, this is a fucking audacious movie to have as your debut. Yeah, Like, you know, we talked about Bound on the show and an incredible film for sure, but it's pretty straight down the middle in terms of just like, it's feeding you pretty familiar, um, you know, cinematic language, you know, like, like it's, it's playing on tropes that we're very familiar with, um, and just kind of like taking them in a, a new direction, uh, basically. So you know, that to me reads as like, oh, okay, that makes sense why they would do that. There's some commercial viability to this. There's, you know, I can see like how they thought, you know, if I put this movie together um, on a shoestring budget, we're definitely going to make our budget back because there's a very like, uh, uh, there's there's a way in for audiences. And I think more often than not, that's what you see from debut films is ones that, that have that commercial viability, even if they're doing it in a twisty, weird way. This movie, though, is like challenging. I think that's an excellent point because, you know, talk sticking with the bound example, like that's a ripping off the, a mobster type of movie. It's like, yeah, everyone you can get you can get down with that. It's like, oh, these two women fall in love and they want to rip this guy off and he's a dick anyway. So who cares? It's like, OK, yeah, I can uh, I can get behind that. But could you even imagine the elevator pitch for this for, for pie just being like and, and I think, again, it's just to what you're speaking towards. It's just like, oh, it's just this isolated mathematician genius who's an asshole. And it's a movie about the magic of numbers. Like, and, and I think you're right. There is something to be said for the bravery of having such a, um, difficult subject matter to try to tackle in your debut mm-hmm. of just like something that seems so, uh, ripe for starchiness, stodginess, boredom. I mean, a math, you know, is, is there anything <laughs> lamer? I'm just kidding, just trying to sound unintelligent. I think I'm succeeding, um, but um, yeah, it's just you're right. You're that. right, though. It's um, it's a um, it's it's a big swing it in is. terms of just the subject matter. It's temp- it's going for. Well, and to that point, I mean, they 
didn't get a budget for this. They had to scrape together money to, to make this movie. Um, apparently the way that they got it funded largely was by just asking friends and family and, and connections for a hundred dollars each with the promise that if it made money, they'd pay them back 150. Um, and they eventually scraped together a $60,000 budget, I think for the, the production, um, and the post-production ended up costing around 65000 or something like that. So total, like all in, this movie cost just over 120000 $120, uh, to make, which is just, I mean, that's unfathomable to me that like you can, you can pull that off and, and get this result. I mean, I, I think it, it is an incredible looking film for, for what they, you know, for how, how much they spent on it. Um, but, you know, to what we were saying before, yeah, there there was no path to profitability really with this unless they just blew out a, a major film festival, which is what they did. That's what they did. They they so they stuck to their lane. They knew they what they could do, and they're like, yeah, we're stick with it. And this is how we could actually pay our pay our friends and family back is is go this kind of film festival route. And you know, you're talking about the cinematography of this movie, and like we were talking earlier about or you mentioned anyway, that how beautiful some of the shots are. Um, even though I have problems with, with Max, the character that shot before he goes to hit enter on the new computer chip thing. And it's like circling. Like he is, he is walking in a circle. Uh, see, I didn't room. really like that shot. Oh, I like that shot. That shot grew on me on second. That, watch, shot to was me, like, that was kind of that film school shit that I was talking about where I was yes. just like, okay, dude, like, yeah, I felt that way the first time I saw it. But the second time I saw it, I was thinking like, uh, and I think part of it is in the commentary, Aaron, Aaron, Aronofsky said that it was just a handheld shot. Yeah. So I was just impressed with, from a technical aspect of the steadiness of the operator. I was going to say, I didn't realize yeah. that uh, until you just said that, but that is really impressive. That yeah, they, it's like, like, it looks like it's locked off. Yeah, because it flows. So I guess they were on an Apple box, a half Apple, because the operator was a little bit smaller than Max. And like, um, I, I'm wondering if he was on like a, like a, I guess he must have just been. I don't know if he was on like a turn, like a turntable sort of thing, like Lazy Susan, or if he was just actually just turning. But they had to fight. You know, they're wrangling cable too, and Aronofsky was like behind the operator, I think, messing with cable as like going around in circles. So it's just like, and I'm watching it as he's talking over the shot, and I'm like, wow, like this shot is silky smooth, like it looks like a Steadicam shot. So, so that was that was really. That part of it was impressive to me. It is. Yeah, it's definitely impressive. Um, well, maybe we should talk about the cinematography yeah. then off of, the, off of that conversation. I, I love I, it. I want to say that the camera operator in that shot was probably the cinematographer, Matthew Libatik, because I highly doubt that they had a huge crew of you know people to do all the, the different jobs. I'm, I want to say that he probably was behind the camera on almost every shot. But Matthew Libatik is a super, super talented cinematographer i'm i really love his work uh especially recently he shot a star is born which i think is an in, insanely beautiful movie um so well shot and and you know he's done every aronofsky film since since pie he's just a yeah i i really love his work in this movie i'm a little hit or miss on it um i think there are shots that are, are tremendous and uh i think a lot of times the black and white you know, very contrasty uh, way that they shoot this movie uh, it can be 
really cool to look at. But there's also times where, you know, it's super blown out and like, you know, like you can barely like make out the character's face because it's so like overexposed. I don't even know if that's the right terminology. My brother's going to give me shit when he hears this, but, but there's a blown out quality that, that just, I, sometimes I'm just like, this just looks like shit. So I'm, I'm hit or miss on it, but I do see like, I see the, the seedlings of, of Matthew Liebetique's style here. And, and that I found really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the thing about, Black and white is a really big decision to make uh, when it's a choice, you know, assuming that this is a movie made during color as color being an option. It's like, I think a movie really needs to justify being black and white to, to some degree. And I don't, I'm not convinced this movie does. I'm not, I'm not also saying definitively that it should be in color, but I, when I sit back and, and I was listening to the commentary today, I got about halfway through it. So maybe he does get into it eventually but he kept talking about like oh doing this in black and white and we did that in black and white and you know the go board looks good in black and white and i really wanted to ask him i was like at what point in the project did you decide to go black and white was it like in the writing stage where you where you, was he just thinking this is a black and white film uh, did he just get in his head he wanted to do that um, or at some point like leading up to production was he like you know what i think this should be black and white and I just don't really know if it needs to be. Well, like, I, I want to say that might have been a budgetary constraint because I, I believe mm, that black and white film stock is cheaper than, than color film stock. That would make sense then. Now, if, if it was just a, uh, uh, yeah, just a practicality like that of just like, hey, we, it'll cost uh, 15 grand less to shoot it black and white. And that's what we have to do. Uh, then it makes me respect it a little bit more uh, mm. because I think if it if looked at in a vacuum of, of, a, of a potentially just being an artistic choice. I was I was left wondering is like would this be better in color and and again the choice might be no it might it might require a black and white film as it is um, but I just thought it was worth mentioning but speaking more specifically um, into the cinematography I thought for the most part it was really really good and it's like again considering the budget they're working on like there was some I like the composition of a lot of the shots mm-hmm. and. Um, like when he's meeting with Lenny Meyer in the coffee shop, I just kind of like those scenes. I like yeah. the way they're sort of structured and the rhythm of the dialogue and the rhythm of the cutting there is good. Um, There's some really clever camera placement in in those mm-hmm. scenes too that doesn't feel like traditional uh, coverage, you know, that you would see for a dialogue scene. Um, and there's, uh, that there's, there's interesting camera placement throughout. There's a lot of stuff where like, you know, the camera's up high in a way that like, I, I, uh, you know, haven't really seen people do before there, there's some shots of like him in his apartment that reminded me a lot of like the conversation and stuff there. There's some perspective shots that they do and like, like things where the camera is, I, I don't know if they attached it to their bodies or not, but but where the the actor is kind of like center frame and and it, you know it's kind of like a manic you know moving shot where the character's kind of like you know daisily moving through the world like I, I don't know all that stuff I thought was really clever and I don't I I don't know how they did all of it it, it some of it just like you know it has I don't know it's 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 really it's really clever. Well, it's funny too. It's another bound connection because that shot type you're describing sure. and yeah. like looking back is when when the briefcase is empty, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, spoiler alert for Bound. Check that movie out. Um, but um, also too, like thinking of 
like when he's being chased through the bodega, it's like I don't know how they like ran through the aisles that fast without like knocking anything over. There's just some like interesting technical things of just like the reality of doing it. I'm like, um, and 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 Aronofsky was telling all these good stories of like, like for the subway scenes and stuff, like they would just go from like 10 p.m. to like four in the morning because they didn't have. Uh, you know, it costs something like eighteen thousand a day. Oh, they didn't have sh- permits. They they, they shot a lot of this movie illegally. Yeah, and so they would just ride the subways at night when there would be less people, and just try to get the shots that they need, and just hope the fuzz didn't come stomping down on them. And and like when they did the brain, the brain thing we were talking about, like on the stairs. Like, they would have to try to hope that nobody would step on the brain as they were, like, setting it up. And, like, again, it's late night, so there's not a ton of foot traffic, but it's New York. There's always going to be some. And so whenever someone would approach, they would have to cover the brain with a paper, a newspaper, and tell people, like, not to step on it and stuff. And then at one point, like, they saw a cop came down and, like, looked at the brain and looked at them filming and just kind of left them be. And they (laughs) thought it was like, oh, man, like they gave us a pass. And then they found out that Woody Allen was was filming a scene like across the street that night, <laughs> and that so now Aronofsky is wondering if that cop just thought they were like second unit or yeah. something something associated saved with Woody by Allen. Woody. It's pretty cool. So, um, so yeah, I mean that sort of stuff. I really just like that's just cool. Like they're just getting out there and doing it and making it totally. Uh, and that needs to be you know complimented by me, I guess you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you you brought up the the scene of them running through the convenience store, and there are some shots in there that I really like, but I think that's also emblematic of what I didn't like cinematography-wise in this movie, because there's a lot of, like, shaky cam cutting, and, like, like the camera's going all over the place, and, like, it's just, sh- like randomly filming like the side of a building and then you know down to the side it's just like it, it's it's going so crazy that it it made me feel like I was about to have a stroke like it was just like or a seizure is what I was actually looking for there um yeah it, it just it, it was a little jarring and just felt like I don't know I I and and there's other stuff too, like and I think I think this is probably intentional, but it it still is a little bit off putting to me. There are zero establishing shots in this movie, like they never give you a wide of like his his apartment or his you know the outside of his building or like the streets or or the the cafe where he's meeting with you know the Hasidim or you know like not nothing. There's never a. a wide to to let you into this world and show you like orient you and i think like i said like i think that probably is intentional to make it more unsettling and to kind of like you know uh not give your your brain the catharsis that it's looking for but at the same time i don't i don't know i i think you can still do the psychological intensity without depriving the audience of some cinematic language that would help them orient themselves. Yeah. And like figure out where they are. Yeah. I mean, I guess I didn't really notice the lack of establishing shots, but now that you mention it, it's like, we do get some like kind of New York-y sort of B-roll shots. Like I think of that, that shot of the guy uh, in Chinatown throwing that, which is cool bird. Yeah. 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 So like that was, that was a great shot. And actually it wasn't Darren, Darren Aronofsky who got that shot. It was a, it's the AC, I think, first AC mm. um, was just out doing stuff. And I do love that type of filmmaking of just like it seems very um, from what I know of Bob Downey. It seems kind of like sure. that style of like, hey, just go out there and see what you get. 
and we'll find a way to, to, to fold it in if it's good. And well, it seems very kind of organic. So I did, did like those sort of types of shots that just seem clearly oh, yeah, I they didn't were mind like, that stuff. they're like, Oh, we're just grabbing New York reality. But I get what you're saying about the like exterior. Of the Everything's just so tight. You, like it's a, yeah. it's a very claustrophobic movie. Super. And, and again, it's probably what it's trying to do. And uh, it's trying to be confusing. And we're talking about sort of the kinetic energy in some of those shots and how disorienting it is. And it's, yeah, it's supposed to be. And again, that line is just so hard. It's like, I get that's what you're trying to do, but it's a bitch to watch. Are you trying to make your movie a pain in the ass to watch? Like, is that the objective? And it's like, there's a really fun, f- fine line there. And sometimes it, it dribbles over. Yeah. Over, overall, I, 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 I really like the cinematography. I think it's interesting. And uh, I'm, you know, like I said, like glad to have the the historical context for, for Libatique's career because he's an incredibly talented cinematographer. That's awesome. I wanted to, um, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit. I mean, there's probably not much to say, but how New York this movie is. <laughs> this is a super New York movie. And, um, you know, that's, I feel like that's kind of an expression of like a movie that taps into New York really well. You know, there are LA movies, there are New York movies. And, and a lot of people talk about movies like mean streets and um, different things like that as being very, uh, someone who is really able to capture the essence of New York at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, It became very clear listening to the commentary that Aronofsky is from New York, just in his accent. And, you know, he just talked about it openly, but I think this movie, um, it's just it's just so New York. You know, we've got the subway stuff. We've got the Coney Island stuff. We've got like uh, it just seems to kind of c- capture it. And also, like, you know, you know that I'm not a big fan of New York because I do find um, the the relentlessness of the energy exhausting and overwhelming a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this movie captures that, I think, really well in a way of just like the the claustrophobia of living in New York and the kind of nonstop sort of reckless energy that kind of runs throughout the city. Um, that it's landlord all kind of in was a movie. very New York landlord. Oh yeah. <laughs> like dude, guy wakes up on the floor with a bloody nose and she's just hassling him about the extra latches You're on the out. door or whatever. You're, You're out. out. You're out. You're out. And um, yeah. But then, yeah, then he lashes out at everyone. And it's like cute girl down the hall. It's like, are you okay? Like, Get out. Get out. I'm like, God, this guy, <laughs> Is such an overactor and such an asshole. Like I just can't get get leave get out. Well, something tells me that guy is uh, about as asexual as a, as you get. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. But like, and, and I guess you know, if we do want to talk a little bit about the whole neighbor character thing, like I didn't really know what she was doing there. I get that you know she kind of represents the the elements of life that he's not either doesn't want to partake in or is incapable or views himself as incapable of taking part in. But I don't know. All that stuff kind of felt a little, little odd to me. Yeah. What'd you think? Uh, Well, the character's name is Debbie and I was, I was doing other things and I wasn't paying as close of attention as I, I I needed to uh, fully digest this, but I guess that name is a reference to, um, I want to say like a Hindu uh, God or, or some part of that, it, 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 there's a religious connection to it. And, and there's, there's, there's things about that character that are representing something, but, but it's beyond my understanding. So I'm not going to try and talk about it. 
Yeah, I mean, Aronofsky in the commentary said she represents the Earth, kind mm-hmm. of like pulling him or trying to pull him back, um, and he's yeah. choosing to not be there. And you know, I, I I get that. I can follow that. And there's nothing wrong with the performance either. I, I think or, you could have used a little more of her if you're going to really hammer that home, though. Yeah, yeah, and she just seems like the best neighbor. She seems nice. But she's got iodine. But also a really she's fake. Like, extent though you know yeah. to where it's like like it she's, she's so nice like so absurdly like into this guy and like you mm-hmm. it, it's makes no sense why she would have any interest in this person at all um, yeah but yeah when she's like giving him a, yeah but yeah it just doesn't really read it's like why like when she's people... fixing his hair and and yeah. stuff and like like she genuinely like seems to care about this person and it's like what basis would you ever have for giving a shit about this guy like he's been an asshole to you every time we've seen him. This guy is just so hard to root for. Like he's just such a dick. And you're right. I have no idea why she's nice, so nice to him. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I brought you some food, and he's just like, get away from me. Like more or less. And she's like, oh, he's just being. That's Max doing Maxie things. Yeah. And it's just like it's. I don't mind absurd. the performance though. I do want to say. No, like, no. I think I, yeah, she's. That's... I think she's good. She just like. I, I think that character yeah. needs more if you're gonna if you're gonna have it really register. Um, but speaking of performances, I wanted to talk about Mark Margolis. Yes. So yeah. he's the only other, I would say, like major character in this movie. Um, I think the Lenny Meyer character, uh, played by Ben Shankman, who we can talk about too, is is probably the you know the only other one that that is maybe on this level. But Margolis plays Saul Robeson, who's uh, Max's mentor and and you know uh, father figure, confidant, all the above. Um, Margolis, people would know who are listening to this if you don't recognize him from seeing the movie. Uh, he played, what's the character's name? In, in Hector yeah. Salamanca. Hector Salamanca in Breaking Bad, uh, who has the famous scene at the end of season four that I will not spoil for people, uh, but one of the best faces in in film, in my opinion. Has this guy been... 70 years old his entire life. Dude, he looks exactly the same in this movie as he does at, like, say, the beginning of Better Call Saul. Yeah. Because for those who don't know, I, th- I don't think this is a spoiler. It's been long enough. Uh, in Breaking Bad, um, this his character doesn't have the ability to speak and is in a wheelchair and rings a bell to communicate. There are some um, flashbacks where he speaks, though. Yeah. Oh, that's true. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But Better Call Saul, the prequel to uh, Breaking Bad, if you will, um, he's we see him in that fully functioning. Yeah, and so we get to we get to it really hammers home how good his performance in Breaking Bad is, the fact that that is all acting, and he's just doing it so well. Like he he is exceptional. But you're right, he looks exactly the same. It's crazy. It's wild. And this was '98, and like Better Call Saul is what 2018. It's like 20 years difference, and he looks not a day older or younger. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like it's, he is—he's is stagnated in time. He's just like, yeah. like he got to that age, and he was like, you know, yeah. this is the face I want to keep forever. Yeah, dude, I love this performance. He's even though really I've been, good. even though I've been kind of iffy and and kind of bashing the movie a little bit. Mark is my favorite thing about it, and I was like, this is just like a perfect performance. Like every scene he's in, I just get locked in. I love the, the the writing is really good in those scenes too. Let's give a shout out to Aronofsky there. I think, um, 
but he, he's just great. And he was giving me sort of um, Michael Caine in Inception vibes. Mm. If you remember, like, you know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio would come in kind of ranting and raving and, and Michael Caine would kind of try to get him to focus and kind of rein him in a little bit. So this was, this reminded me of that a little, but um, I love his accent in this. I love um, all the physical choices he makes. I love his face. And like you said, it hasn't changed in third 20, 30 years or whatever. Um, But I honestly would not be surprised if it's mentioned in Yuna's for best supporting for me, if not, like, I don't know if it's oh, he immediately win it or anything, is on the like, list for me. Yeah. Yeah. I was, and I was just, as soon as he showed up, I was like, Oh, Hey, the guy from better call Saul, Hector Salamanca. Nice. And then I'm just like, next thing I know, I'm just locked into like the rest of his career has fallen away and I'm just watching the performance. And I'm just like, this is just great. Like every, everything he's doing is, is absolutely spot on. And I loved it. Absolutely loved the performance. I completely agree. He's locked in completely. Like it's a really fabulous performance. Um, and it's, it's the one time I think in the movie that you get a peek into at one point, this Max character was sympathetic, you know, at one point this was a real person, uh, who wasn't just consumed by his mania and his, you know, his obsessions, um, because you can see that there is genuine love there from, from the Margolis character. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, he's a tremendous actor. I, I, I did not know he was this good. Um, but yeah, like you said, the, immediately on the list for the yeah. Eunice. Yeah. And just think of like that scene where he's talking about obsession and he's like, you have chosen 216. You will see 216. Like, everywhere you go, like, whatever you choose, you will see. And it's just like, I just love him in that scene. And I'm just like, God damn, that is so... And again, from a writing perspective, it's written really well, too. Um, but in even the, you know, the story of the the water and, like, you know, that whole thing where he, like, dips his finger in the fishbowl. Displacement, and talks about yeah. Displacement and gold. Um, was that Pythagoras? I can't remember who it was. Uh, I don't um, remember. It doesn't matter. But, um, but yeah, every time he shows up in the movie, I was like, shit. And then I was genuinely sad when he di- when he was gone. I was like, oh, fuck, that sucks. That guy died? And I was like, that's a sign of a great performance. Is if in this movie that I'm really not vibing with, I'm like, God, God, I really like that guy. Here's a question for you. I, I I couldn't totally figure this out, and I by the end of the movie, I was on my computer like doing research on my second viewing, so I I, I may have missed it. But um, do they explain, or do they at least hint towards the fact that the second stroke he has that kills him was triggered by looking at the number sequence again? I think it's not said. But I think it's implied okay. that he that was, was that was my read, but I wasn't sure yeah, if I had that right or because not. Because when um, Max kind of gets invited in by the niece, and he's like poking around the house, the the now empty house, Saul's old like notebooks are out, and he's got did like different variations of the two hundred sixteen kind of right, block of right, numbers right, right. written down. So I think it's implied that his interest was piqued. He tried to return to it, and in and. It, caused his second stroke because he yeah. always blamed earlier in the film he had blamed his first stroke on kind of losing it over this number trying to trying sure. to track it down um but yeah god he is so good he so is. so good in this movie ben shankman 
like as I mentioned before, is uh, kind of the third third main character of this movie. He plays Lenny Meyer, um, who is a Hasidic Jew who is trying to track down this number sequence because he believes that it will unlock uh, the Torah as this you know explanation for existence and this this path into uh, you know understanding the universe. Um, but yeah, he he's he's on the search for these numbers as well. And and uh, what did you think of his performance? I thought he was pretty great in this. I loved it. Yeah, it was like I I kept thinking like I wish this movie I wish this movie was flipped. I wish it was about Ben Shankman's character and Max would occasionally enter the story because I so much more enjoyed the uh, the energy that that Lenny the character is kind of embodying. And I loved that performance. And I was more interested in that side of the mathematical coin. I was more interested in the stuff that he was curious about. Now this is just my own bias kind of leaking into this, uh, you know, my thoughts on this movie. But um, I really dug all that side of the movie. This kind of spiritual sort of biblical side of things and trying to understand that, trying to decode that. Um, That was all super great. But. I really found his performance to be very, very solid. And again, it's like, I wish they had flipped the percentages of this film. I think I tend to agree. I think um, it's almost a more interesting movie if you're coming specifically from the, the Jewish perspective, trying to, to analyze the, the, the Torah. Um, I think that's a really, really interesting element of this movie that I wish was explored a little deeper. Um, but yeah, he's he's got a really interesting energy and yeah, I, I really dug the performance. So I just wanted to make sure we mentioned him. Um, he seems like he's had a really good career after this too. I mean, he was in uh, Requiem for a Dream as well, but uh, you know, he was in Trial of the Chicago Seven. He was in um, he was in that show, The Night of. Uh, he was in uh, he's in a few episodes of Billions. Like he's he's done a lot of work since then. So you know, he he is a really incredible talent. Have you seen the Night of? By the way, I have. Good, good show. Uh, great show. Yeah, I really. I think. I think it loses steam in the back half. The first three episodes, I think, are absolutely incredible. Um, once the the central character starts to go through a transformation, is where it kind of lost me because I didn't buy that transformation. But um, I do really like that show. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know the actor's name, but the guy who plays the detective in that show. I love oh, Bill that Camp. Guy. Bill Camp is Bill, a fucking legend. He is awesome. He's in so much stuff, dude. He's incredible in Molly's Game. Um, mm. He was in The Queen's Gambit, that TV show. Uh, yes, he's really good as the that. janitor. That's the first time I saw him, and I was just like, "Who's this guy?" I've heard this amazing things. There, there's a movie that I've been wanting to watch for a little while now, and and you know, is it maybe a contender for the board? Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, but uh, Dark Waters, the the um, Todd Haynes. Uh, Mark Ruffalo movie. Uh, <laughs> another Mark. I love it. I yeah, love it. Maybe we need another Mark. Um, but no, apparently he's he's in that, and, and I've heard amazing things about his performance in that as well. But yeah, no, but The Night Of is where I got introduced to him, and like you're saying, that performance is easily the best part of that show, in my opinion. Love that actor, and if we get him on the board, I, I just would... I, he's got big... Big dog energy for sure. That's why I started to think, man, maybe I need to put uh, Dark Waters on the board. I hope you do, man. I hope you do. It's my week, but I hope you consider it soon, man, because I'd love to see that. Are there any other performances, Drew, you wanted to hit? We've we covered a lot of the major ones. There Anyone was, else you want to give shout outs to? 
There was one more I wanted to shout out, which is uh, Stephen Perlman. He plays the rabbi uh, who's kind of the leader of the the Hasidic Jew uh, group that is trying to track down this number sequence. And he only has one scene. He'd be up for, you know, the uh, uh, supporting, supporting performance in our yeah. U- the Eunice Awards. <laughs> um, but, man, that scene is so good. And I think yes. the way he delivers all of his, you know, explanation of, of why this is so important, why they are trying to track this down, why they are not bad guys. They are trying to, you know, help people. Um, I, I, he just kills that monologue. Yeah, dude, absolutely dunks it. I love what you said. It's a supporting, supporting, and it's, it totally fits the rubric of that. of like someone who is barely in the movie and completely steals the show. Like, it's just like, who is this guy? And I was like, I was, I recognized his face, but I, I was confusing him with the guy who plays the hard ass, um, in Shawshank Redemption. Mm. I was confusing him with that guy, but, um, I guess he died like this year, that, oh, that no year, the year the movie came out, he passed away in 98. Like before so it like, came out or did he get to see it have success at least? I do not know. Mm. Um, I just saw that his his date of his passing was 98, and I saw that Pi was 98, and I was like, that's weird. So this was probably his last performance, I would think. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was um, I was kind of intoxicated by him a little bit. Mm-hmm. It was just like, who is this? This guy is, is great. And like you said, it's a really tricky scene. It's, a, it's practically a one-way monologue, like you said, and it's got all this kind of spiritual, biblical stuff, a lot of talking, a lot of words. He's got the most amazing beard I think I've ever seen. He's amazing great, beard, but really great voice, too. Great voice, great facha. Do you think he's related to Ron Perlman? <laughs> I don't know. That's interesting. I, I hadn't even considered I, that. I wondered. I was like looking because that's another great voice, Mr. Ron Perlman. I feel like there's uh, got to be a, a number of Perlmans out there, but yeah, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Who, who knows? He. Uh, I was. I just pulled up his IMDb just to see what other, what some of his other credits are. Um, and apparently, he's in Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is a movie that I really dig. Um, but I just. I. I don't know that I. Re- I've registered him before. I'll have to rewatch that with that in mind. Um, and he's also, uh, in quiz show, which is a movie I watched during the pandemic that I enjoyed. Um, uh, yeah. So talented actor, um, really sad to hear that he's already, he, he died. That that's, that's too bad. Hope you got to see this movie. Have some success. Yeah, I hope so too. But yeah, great performance. Great little one-off. Yeah. Um, I think that'll do as far as the performances go. I mean, were there, there weren't any that you no, to no, that, I mean, we pretty much covered the entire cast, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least of speaking roles. Yeah. Um, I wanted to move into, uh, kind of as a, a, a last little, uh, section here. I do, I do really want to talk about the sound of this movie in general, but, but specifically the score. Um, it's done by a guy named Clint Mansell, who is a really, really talented composer, and I, I, you know, this was kind of his breakout, but he's this, he's one of these guys that has, um, composed some of the most iconic sounding scores that have been like reused in trailers and commercials. And like, like he's got a lot of that kind of stuff in his repertoire. He, the Requiem for a Dream score specifically has been used over and over and over again in, in trailers and and whatnot i think they used it in the original two towers trailer um but yeah he's he's just a really really talented composer and and yeah this was his debut uh what do you think of the music in this movie 
Dude, it's funny because I, I, I really dug it. I um I was sitting down for my second watch, you know, and again, I had my feelings about the movie, like didn't really love it, had my problems with Max and that performance. But like one of the first things I wrote down on second watch was just, I do like the music. Like I got to give it up to the music. Like it's got kind of that kind of the fight clubby sort of energy. Um, it was, I thought, super, super good. It's, I, it's I unsettling. Really it. It's, it does such a good job of like um, putting you in the headspace of the character. And I mean, that's, that's a tribute to the, the sound design as well, which is also just super unsettling. And I, I read uh, some guy on Reddit was talking about this movie and they were saying that they saw it at, uh, in just a movie theater and that they felt like they were being assaulted by the sound of this movie. Just the music and the, the sound design of it is so aggressively unsettling that it, it really, really deeply affected them. And that makes me want to see this in a theater now just to like have that experience because it, it apparently was pretty intense. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't slight anyone to put this on. Like, you know, if we were doing our unis and this is like in the conversation for best sounding because it is very effective score and the sound design is, is really gets in there. It really, you know, punches you up and I can see the appeal of seeing it in a the theater mm-hmm. be like, Ooh man, I want to feel uncomfortable. I'm going to go see pie in the theaters. Yeah. Um, just to shout out some of other, some other credits of Clint Mansell's, um, he composed, uh, all the music for the mass effect games, which if you've never played mass effect that, I mean, I'm not generally a video game person, but those games are absolutely incredible. And the music is, is really, really great. Um, uh, just adds a, an amazing cinematic quality to them. Um, he also has worked with, uh, Aronofsky quite a few times. He did the black swan music. Um, he did the music for Noah. He did, you know, pretty much, most of of uh, of Aronofsky's films at this point. Mm. Um, he also composed the music for uh, my favorite episode of Black Mirror ever, San Junipero, mm. which yep. uh, you know an, another just incredible achievement. Um, and then I, I also wanted to say uh, the, his his score for Moon is a tremendous score, and he, and he, that movie. Is a I, I really really like that movie. I think it's aged not so great in my brain over over time, but I I think part of the thing is like the music in that movie is so good and so emotional and and just like like makes you like so excited that that it kind of makes the movie better by like an entire letter grade just by having that score. I think we're rounding the corner on pie here, Drew. Uh, is there anything else you kind of wanted to hit uh, before we uh, get a new nominee to replace it on the board? I don't think I have many things to talk about, but I did skip over one thing that I wanted to mention about Aronofsky. Um, after he did Re- Requiem for a Dream, he went through a period where he was trying to get a bunch of things made that didn't get off the ground. And he was in line to do a Batman movie for a long time. He was developing uh, Batman Year One with Frank Miller, um, which is, you know, uh, essentially, or was he doing Year One? I don't remember if he was doing that or if he was the like trying to do the old man Batman thing. Um, but he was trying to like reinvent Batman for a while and go with a super grounded, like even more grounded than Batman Begins goes um, before Batman Begins. This was like early 2000s. 
Um, you know, he was developing it where the Batmobile, like a concept that that uh, later Matt Reeves kind of stole from him. But but his concept for the Batmobile was just like an Oldsmobile four door sedan. Like you know, it was like you know, just a souped up car that it, you know you would see on the road normally. So just like a hyper realistic. Yeah, like and like Matt movie. Reeves changed it into a muscle car, and and I don't yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the direction that Re- that uh, Aronofsky was going, but you know, mm-hmm. similar concept and. And like, you know, just just trying to make it as gritty and real as possible. Like the Batcave is really just like a, a car garage, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, like yeah. Shit like that's, that. Um, so cool, that man. it's interesting to think about an alternate universe where Aronofsky got to make that movie bef- and Nolan never made the, the Batman series. Um, I, so, I put my head in the door of that universe. Yeah. But I, I like the one I'm living in. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I need yeah. uh, the director of Pi to make a uh, Batman movie necessarily, but it would be interesting for sure. Um, yeah. So Aronofsky has a few of those stories in his career where he like came really close to doing something super commercial and, and big budget and, and just hasn't done it. Mm. Well, I wouldn't blame him either because like, you know, you have a movie like this Pi, and it's successful. And then you go and you get sucked into these like bullshit systems and like, you know, you got to answer to all these people. And like, it just must be true that when directors get to that level of success, they must look back on the early days so fondly and just be like, oh, remember when we were sneaking out of the train? Remember when studio notes didn't exist? Yeah. And we were just stealing shots and like up all night, riding the subway, trying to make this movie, everyone banding together. Like, they oh, the heart must break when they're just like talking to a network executive who's like, it needs to be funnier or like whatever, just like this guy's not friendly or like a- anything. And it's just like, it's just must be brutal. It's like that line from uh, like Andy Bernard in, in the office where he's like in the finale saying like, I wish you knew you were in the good times when you were in them. <laughs> you know? Mm. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 I think about that line a lot. He's a really interesting filmmaker. Uh, fuck the whale, uh, but otherwise, I'm I'm very interested to see what he does next. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if another Aronofsky gets on the board someday. I I do want to check sure. out more of his stuff. Um, and yeah, even though I was kind of on the downslopes on, or on the downside of this movie as we were talking about it, uh, it it is unquestionably interesting. Mm. Well, shall we wrap up here on pie? Yeah, dude, I think I've got. Uh, I've said everything. I've, I've, I've said my mind. I've spoken my piece. There you go. With that, it's time to get another movie on the board, and it is Jared's week. What you got for us this week, Jared? Well, it's a big one because it's the first nominee of a fresh batch of 50. And I, there was one movie I really, really wanted to do. I really want to see Election. I've seen Election so many times. I mean, I would be happy to talk no, about it. No, no, Election, the, it's a Hong Kong movie. Oh, 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 wait, Election. Hmm. That's a, a Johnny Toe movie that, like, the Videodrome people like were like, oh, it's awesome. It's like a, the Yakuza or the mob hosts an election to replace well, why someone. why don't we do that movie? Um, yeah, I, that's the one I want to. Let's well, do why it. Why wouldn't, what, what, why are you holding back? But the reason I thought it would be confusing is it's not the it's not the election you were thinking of. That's okay. The the Alexander Payne film. So I just want to make sure to make it clear that it's. Um, let me pull it up real quick. 
If the Videodrome yeah. guys are saying it's great, I definitely want to watch it. Yeah, they said it's awesome, and then they said, I think they said in the next few days there was going to be releasing a new version of it, like a Criterion or something. Apparently, in two thousand five, uh, Quentin Tarantino called it the best film of the year. Oh wow, cool. So so yeah, Election is the movie I want to go with because, okay. like you said, the Videodrome guys, you know, we can trust them. I saw one Johnny Toe movie that really blew me away, and I was like, this guy's great. And then again, the video drama guy was like, oh, if you like that, you should see Election. Yeah, let's uh, let's get it on the board. Like, we've had some really good areas, like with just Chinese cinema and and, and Hong Kong movies and stuff. We've, we saw some In the Mood for Love and some other great things. So I kind of want to check back in with that with that kind of creative culture a little bit and see, what, see what's going on in this movie. Let's do it. I, I'm, yeah. I've never seen a Johnny Toe movie. I've heard good things. Uh, I trust Quentin Tarantino's advice when it comes to Asian film. Let's do it. It sounds great. Hell yeah, dude. Let's get it up there. I hope we hit it soon, but we'll we'll find out when we do. So 2005's election, not 1999's election. Asian mafia film, uh, not a, uh, a high, high school, school drama starring <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. A high school dramedy with Matthew Broderick, <laughs> which is a great movie, by the way. If anyone Incredible out there has seen, movie. If anyone hasn't seen Election, Alexander Payne, I think it was his second film, I want to say, uh, is yeah, awesome. Yeah, because yeah, Citizen had, uh, Ruth, I think, was the first yep, one. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, one of my favorite directors, and it's great, but that's not the one we're doing. We're doing we are doing 2005's doing. Election. Let's review the board one more time before we throw that dart. At number one, You Can Count On Me. Number two, Ikiru. Number three, Reflections of Evil. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Election. Number nine, Get Carter. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, Coraline. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Night Moves. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Secrets and Lies. Number 17, Titan. Number 18, Snatch. Number 19, Strange Days. And number 20, The terminator nice dude i'm going lefty i haven't thrown in a while let's see what we get yeah <laughs> they're not gonna believe me drew get the 12 fuck out of here 12 no i i am throw not- it again that's a lie i Threw it lefty and took the video. I hit 12. I'm going to start having Bridget watch you as like a third party observer. I, I, I was like, I, th- I threw it and I was like, oh my God. When it, when it like, it, you, you'll see it in the video. It is the, the flutteriest, most bad throw. I was like, it was 12, the straight story. I was like, oh my God, I think it is. That's why I was laughing when I got back. I, th- I wanted to look at the number to double check. I was like, I think Drew said it was 12. Like, I didn't even remember it was 12 before I threw it. It's the straight story. I'm going to take you to court if you're lying to me. <laughs> Dude, I'm not. <laughs> All right. Well, our final OG is getting knocked down. It's the straight story, the David Lynch film from 1999, doing another 1999 movie. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to watch yeah. it. I, I don't have a ton of background with Lynch, and I'm I'm not a major fan of his from what I've seen. So, I'm gonna be curious to watch this one and see see what I think overall. But uh, but yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'm very excited about telling the story about how I heard about this movie. We'll save oh, that cool. for next week. Okay. Um, Streaming check shows that 
The Straight Story is currently available on Disney Plus. So if you got if you got a subscription to that, you're good to go. Uh, and then elsewhere, it's pay to rent. So hmm. normal places for that uh, should be easy to track down. And I I honestly wish it, we didn't just hit it because it's so fucking fishy. Um, and I get I get your hesitation, true. Uh, but it's the dart has been working very strangely lately, and this is just in theme with that. Yeah. But you got to trust in the dart, man. And it's taking us to the straight story next week. I'm looking forward to it, man. I am as well. I just read a couple of letterbox reviews that got me very titillated. So ooh, okay, yeah. okay, good. Yeah, I'm going in relatively fresh, so we'll see. Well, the, the, these were not spoiler at all. It was just mm-hmm. like reactions, and I was like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. this person likes it. That's fun. Okay, cool. Who was the person, if I if I may ask? Uh, well, it? well, it was a couple of people, but um, Fennessy was one of them. Uh, oh, cool. And uh, yeah, Sean Fennessy from, from The Ringer. Um, and then uh, David Sims uh, from Blank Check and The Atlantic uh, calls it a perfect movie. Wow. So we'll um, we'll see what we think. We'll yeah. get our, our big names into the conversation. about. But two guys that I, I will take any of their advice. Uh, so very excited to watch it now. Yeah, I'm excited too, man. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our episode this week on Pi. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please remember to rate, review, give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight, which we haven't updated in months. Artwork for the show was created by Veronica <laughs> Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. Sorry, Mac. Later. Later.